I shared this when my children were still living at home, but we had this routine that we went through every morning before our kids left for school, either me dropping them off out of the car or later on as they got older driving themselves to school. I would say to them every morning, you can, you can ask them when you see them, I said to them every morning, I love you, they would reply back, I love you too. I would then say to them, have a good day, they would tell me, okay, they would. And then I wanted the very last thing they ever heard from my lips every single morning they left the house, these words, honor the Lord. Honor the Lord. And I hammered it into their heads. You could wake them up right now in the middle of the night. Quick, tell me what did your dad say to you when you left the house? They would just reflexively say, honor the Lord. I kept making sure they remembered that. Caleb, when he went off to college, needed a Wi-Fi router set up in his room. So I set it up for him, and I named it HTL247, Honor the Lord 24-7. He could never get away from his dad, you know? <laughs> now, why did I do that? Well, when you grow up in a pastor's home, when you're a pastor's kid, a preacher's kid, it would be very easy for you to think that the reason you need to keep your nose clean at school is because it could reflect negatively on dad's job. I didn't care anything about that. It, it could be real easy when you grow up in a home where you have a good relationship with your parents that the reason I need to keep my nose clean at school is because I, I don't want my parents to be embarrassed. I didn't care anything about that. As a matter of fact, I didn't care whether they kept their nose clean. Here's what I cared about, that they glorify God in their thoughts and in their actions and in their attitudes. That's the only thing I, I cared about. I wanted them to know that their ultimate authority wasn't their dad, the preacher, or their mom, the elementary school pre, uh, principal. How would you like to grow up in that home, huh? I wanted them to know that their ultimate authority was and always would be Jesus, their king. Now, the reason I bring that up for you today is because we reach an interesting section of Peter's letter to the churches that he had oversight over, something that you see happen a lot in these letter books of the New Testament. There is doctrinal instruction given, and then there is a key transition in the book to ethical instruction. Here is how you live out what you know. We arrive at that point today, but Peter, before he gets to the specifics, and we'll get to one of those specifics today, before he gets to the specifics, he wants to lay out the foundational principle of what it means to live ethically, to live responsibly with Jesus as your king. And so I hope you have found 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's word this morning? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those 
who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, you may have noticed as we were going through this that there was general instruction and then specific instruction. That general instruction is the foundational principle by which everything else we are going to hear today and for the next few weeks comes from. And so as we think broadly about what it means to live as exiles in this world with Jesus as our king, the first thing we need to understand, we need to hammer home in our mind, is that we are to honor God with our conduct. We are to honor God with our conduct. And that begins to come out to us in verse 13. Let's take this piece by piece. Or excuse me, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Let's stop right there. You'll remember, Peter has said this over and over again, that he says that when you surrender your life to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you cease to, in every real way possible, be a citizen of this world. You become an outsider. You become an exile. He's used that word exile before. This is the first time he uses another word, sojourner. That word doesn't show up very much at all in the New Testament. And in Peter's language, it's a compound word which translated roughly, literally, means outside the house. Now, he's not meaning exile and sojourner to mean different things. He's just stacking words on top of one another to communicate the idea that, that when you surrender yourself to Jesus as Lord, you, you no longer have a home in this world. It's probable that he is thinking of a very key event from the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 23. You'll remember that Abraham had been called out of his homeland at the voice of God to go to the land that God would show him, and there he would establish Abraham and make him a great nation. And so Abraham sets off with all these ideas about what God's going to do to fulfill that, and he winds up with one son. Hard to make a nation out of one son in Abraham's mind. And then his wife Sarah dies. And he's in the place where God said he would establish him, but he doesn't own a single solitary sliver of the land. So he has to go to the rulers of this area where Sarah has died, and he has to barter with them to purchase the land. And when he goes to them, he says to them, I'm an alien and a stranger. He's borrowing that idea of being outside the house, a sojourner. He says, I just, I don't have anything here at all. I'm outside the house. I don't have a home. And when you surrender yourself to Jesus, Peter is reminding us here, in this world, you will have no spiritual home, you will have no theological home, you will have no ideological home. Jesus, your allegiance to him as your king, makes you an outsider. And so he says, as these outsiders, 
Here's what you need to do. You need to abstain from the passions of your flesh. Now, a lot of times when you read that language in the New Testament, it is followed by something that theologians and Bible scholars call, I kid you not, sin list. You know, a listing of all of these sins, a language, passions of the flesh, like, and then you have a listing of sins. I love those lists. I love those lists for the same reason you love those lists. I like to find everybody else's sin on them, right? Well, that's so-and-so, and that's so-and-so, and then we just skip over the parts in that list that don't reflect favorably on us and tell ourselves all those other things listed are worse than mine. Peter doesn't do that, though. He just says, as people who don't belong, you need to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. As I think about the, the picture that, that Peter is, is, I think, calling to mind here, I, I think of, of, of iron or steel in a in a, in a salty saline sea environment. Have you seen it? Now, obviously you have. You visit the ocean, and if there's steel, if there's iron there, the, the, the literal atmosphere of the area is corroding that steel. There has to be constant work and constant labor to keep the, the steel to, from succumbing to the elements. He is saying here, you need to understand as a sojourner, as an exile, you live in a corrosive environment when it comes to your obedience to God. Everything in the world in which you live is pulling you away from obedience to God, and you need to abstain from it. You need to wage war against that which wage war against your soul. So, keep your nose clean. But why? Why? Well, he's about to tell us. He's about to tell us you keep your nose clean in order to honor God. This is what motivates you. This is what causes you to live as you do. He says, keep your conduct among the exile or the Gentiles honorable. Now, Gentiles here in Peter's language is a word which all of us, I think, even though we might not know Peter's language, will get uh, a connection to. The word Gentiles is ethnos. It is the word from which we get ethnic or ethnicity. So is Peter saying you need to make sure your conduct is honorable among a race of people? No. Peter uses that whole, that whole Gentile-Jewish divide in his world in a strictly spiritual sense. What he's referring to there are unbelievers. In fact, some of our modern English translations will not translate it Gentiles, but instead pagans. To communicate the idea, is not talking about a race of people that our conduct is to be honorable among. He's talking about unbelievers. Keep your conduct among Gentiles, unbelievers, honorable. And then it says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, why, why would they do that? Why would they speak against us as evildoers? Well, it has to do with your exile. I want you to think about the animosity that is directed toward immigrants because they don't speak the language of uh, of, uh, of our country as fluently as we do or because they have different cultural habits or because they comport themselves differently, there is a tendency, there is a natural response in the human heart to view these outsiders with suspicion 
at best, and sometimes outright animosity. And so what Peter is saying here is that your faith in Jesus has made you like that in the eyes of the world. They're going to view you with suspicion. They're going to harbor animosity toward you. That's why they might speak against you as evildoers, but he says, he says, keep your conduct honorable among them so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is the day of judgment. And it's kind of a natural instinct for us in the really divisive and warring culture in which we live to read that, keep your conduct honorable so that uh, they have no place to hang their hat when judgment gets them. You know, God's going to get them, and so you need to live this way so you can go, ha, 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 on the day of judgment. But that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that you continue to live your distinct exile, sojourning life. So that if they try to malign you, there's nothing to support it. And maybe, just maybe, they will see your conduct and join you in your exile. They'll join you in your sojourn. In other words, they will surrender themselves to Jesus as king because they've seen you live with Jesus as your king so and so there we go. We are to honor our king with our conduct. We are to live and to comport ourselves in such a way, not that we're just trying to keep our nose clean, but that we're bringing honor to Jesus, our king himself, in the hopes that other people will follow this Jesus. So that's the foundational principle that he has called us to as we think about our ethical conduct as followers of Jesus, as people who are living with Jesus as their king. And so now he says, let me show you what this looks like in a specific area of your life. And it's at this point everybody needs to buckle up. Because he says to them, if you're going to live with Jesus as your king, you need to honor God with your submission. You need to honor God with your submission. Now, now, folks, this is going to carry through in everything he's going to talk about that we will cover over the next three weeks or so. But here's what he says. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Every period, human, period, institution, period. Every human institution. That means every civic group that you're a part of. That means your home. That means your church. It means that you are to live for the Lord's sake, subject to, submissive to, the structures, the very structures in every human institution. Now, why would he say that? Because of a principle that we see 
in the New Testament that Peter knows very well, a man named Paul, wrote a book called Romans. And when he was in the ethical part of that letter, he gets to the same general theme that Peter is discussing. In Romans 13.1, this man named Paul wrote, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And, and so he's speaking there, let every person be subject to the government. But then he steps back and states a general principle. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that is a, a part of the common grace of God, that kind of blessing that he freely bestows on believers and unbelievers alike, he has given society for its smooth operation and its orderly conduct systems and structures of authority. So the authority that exists in the world, the structures that we see in existence in the world are a reflection of God authorizing a system of authority and accountability, of authority and submission in the world in which we live. And so he says, Peter does back in 1 Peter chapter 2, that you and I, for the Lord's sake, are to be subject to, are to submit ourselves to the structures of authority that God has put into place in every period, human period, institution period. Well, what does that mean? He goes on to tell us. Every human every institution, whether it be to the emperor, if you're a note taker, let me tell you who the emperor was at this time. Little guy you may have heard of named Nero. Total whack job. Total whack job. Evil man. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He's just referenced the entire Roman government, from the emperor to the Roman senate to the provincial rulers to the local authorities. In case you missed, Peter is saying, what I've said to you, you are to be subject to Rome. Now, Every one of us knows that everything about Rome was antithetical to Christianity and hostile to Christianity. And he says, you, for the Lord's sake, are to be subject to every human institution, including the empire of Rome. And then he says this, in case anybody missed anything, this is the will of God. For this is the will of God. And again, he picks up the idea from verse 12. He says, doing good uh, in this way, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Picking up that principle from verse 12, he is saying, by being good citizens of Rome, by being subject to the authority, God is not saying he approves of how people have used that authority, he's just talking about the structure itself. By subjecting yourself, by submitting yourself to that structure, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish 
people. What does he mean? He, he, he means that there were people in the Roman world who viewed Christians with suspicion because of their exile, but particularly as anarchists because they could not confess or worship Caesar as God, which was a growing influence at the time of Peter. And so they looked at them and they thought, you've got to view these people with suspicion because their ultimate allegiance isn't to Caesar as king, it's to a, a crucified Jewish rabbi as king. You better keep your eye on those people. An analog to that in a colonial American history is the plight of Baptist. When people came here seeking religious freedom, they came to the shores and began to establish favorable structures to themselves in, in what became America. And they got that religious freedom unless you were Baptist. And the reason for that hostility against Baptist had to do with our view of baptism. For us, baptism is a witness to my, my profession of faith in Jesus as Savior. It is not something that happens to me passively when I'm a baby or a child. It is a conscious act of surrender to Jesus. Well, how the roles were kept and how citizenship was tracked in colonial America was through the records of baptism at church. And so when someone says, I'm not going to baptize my child, I'm going to let them come to a point when they surrender themselves to Jesus as king as an adult, it was upsetting the apple cart in society. And they began to be viewed with suspicion and were marginalized and were on the run for a good part of the early years of colonial America. This is what's happening in Peter's day with Rome. These Christians, you can't trust them, but he says by being world-class citizens... By being subject to every human institution, including Rome, people that will say to you they're anarchists will have nothing upon which to base their argument. They will see, in fact, you being a model citizen. And right about now, because politics is God in America, there are more than a few heads in here about to completely come off your neck explode. What? You mean we're just supposed to roll over and take it? You, you mean that, that we're just supposed to be quiet? Are you saying that we are to, to submit to even ungodly governments that clearly aren't underpinned by the teachings of Scripture? First of all, I'm not saying it. It's in here. And you really don't need me to figure it out. I'm just underlining it for you. Are you telling me then that I'm just supposed to roll over and take it? That I'm supposed to put up with evil? That I'm, I'm not supposed to speak against injustice? Well, hold your horses. Hold your horses. He's about to answer some of those questions for us. Verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. What does that mean? Well... You're citizens of another kingdom. You're obeying that king. You are choosing, by my command, to obey these other human institutions. So it's, a, it's an act of choice. It's an act 
of, of, of free will. You're not being compelled to, you don't obey because the government's got a gun to your head. You obey because your ultimate authority is Jesus and he says to do it. But he says in this freedom, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. And here's where we get to address that, well, what do you mean kind of thinking. He is not saying here that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, with people as Jesus is king, that you just keep your mouth shut when you see injustice and when you see institutionalized evil like abortion going on in the world around you. He's not saying that. He's not saying, well, you know, I just got to do what the Bible says and I'll turn the other cheek. That's what the Lutherans did in Germany in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Well, Hitler, and they turned the other way against what verse 16 is saying. And you're saying, well, good. That means I don't have to sign off social media or quit mainlining my favorite news source. Well, hold, hold your horses. Verse 17, having said that, Having said, this doesn't mean you're quiet about injustice or evil. He says, honor everyone. Everyone. Every person with whom you lock eyes. Every politician whose face pops up on the television is a person created in the image of God. And you are to honor them as such. He goes on to say, love the brotherhood. Speaking of the church there, this may come as a shock to you. Everybody at Blue Valley Baptist Church doesn't agree on everything. I don't know if you know that or not. And boy, that can draw lines. I've seen it. Good night, I've seen it. Can excuse ugliness. Love the brotherhood. Doesn't mean you can't have disagreements. Doesn't mean that you can't speak with one another about important things. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. He's your ultimate allegiance. He is your ultimate king. Everything you are doing should be driven by this ultimate allegiance to God. And then he says again, honor Nero. Honor the emperor. The emperor who in a few short years, tradition has it, would crucify Peter for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. The Nero who according to the annals of history pin the burning of Rome on Christians and would roll them alive in tar and set them on fire to light his gardener. Honor the emperor. There are a lot of people in the Blue Valley universe don't think much President Biden. A lot of people in the Blue Valley universe didn't think much of President Trump. A lot of people in the Blue Valley universe don't think very much either one of them. 
honor the emperor. Don't be silent about, about injustice. Don't be silent about evil. But you do it in a certain way. You do it undergirded by all of this, that you're doing what you're doing not to win an argument or to build your self-righteousness. You're doing what you're doing for the Lord's sake, to honor the Lord. And I've had my belly full of people who will come to me and say, Preacher, just preach it like it lays, who will head for the hills when he does. And I'm telling you, folks, that 90% or more of us can't stay active on social media and be obedient to what we just read. 90% of us can't continue to watch nonstop our favored news sources and stay obedient to what we just read. There's not a single person here who over the last five or ten years hasn't wrecked their testimony, preacher included. Because we've not done what the Lord has asked us to do here. Not a single one of us. We all need to be humble. We all need to recognize we have stepped over lines that has corrupted our testimony. And we need to remember that our king is not who's ever in the White House or in Topeka or at the city of Overland Park. Our king is Jesus. And for his sake, we keep our conduct honorable so that no accusation can stand against us and so that maybe, just maybe, people will find their way to Jesus' king themselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.